After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today on After the Bell. I'm your host, Laura. If you want to know any more about me, as I say in the intro, head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. It's really great to see so many of you following and commenting and building a real community. I really appreciate you being here. So thank you. If you like any of the episodes, this episode or any other, please share on social media and share to people that you think would enjoy it. This is a deeply personal episode because this is a conversation that I have with Karen, my very first supervising teacher all the way back in 2007. And it was my first experience in the classroom. I still remember Karen picking me up from the staff area. All the other student teachers had been assigned to their mentors, but Karen had been teaching in the morning. And so I was sitting, waiting, like at a bus stop almost, and she sort of came and with a quick gesture of the head, told me to move ahead with her and to go into her year 10 class. And I still remember she was teaching To Kill a Mockingbird and I watched the class and it was just effortless. She knew the content really well. She was able to pull kids into line really quickly without them even noticing that she'd seen that they were perhaps distracted. And I remember at the end of that double lesson being incredibly intimidated and thinking, oh, I didn't realise how much goes on in a classroom from a teacher's perspective because I'd never really watched a teacher that intently before as I did a dip ed and so I wasn't in the education realm for very long. And we developed an amazing relationship. In fact, she gave a speech at my wedding and we catch up all the time and she was like a mum, I suppose, to me at work. And it's funny, isn't it, how schools have become this little family? You know, some people are like parents, some people are like siblings that you niggle with. Some of them are like those extended family members that you really try and avoid to see, uh, except for special occasions if you have to. But there is this family element to schools and this real community. And I was really lucky to have this maternal figure. And she really has been a really big advocate for me and allowed me to see what I was good at, what I was capable of. And I think you need that, especially as a new teacher, have someone experienced see your strengths and support you and encourage you to see that you are a good teacher and that you can do great things and not to be too scared of the people that are wiser and more intelligent and potentially more experienced because maybe you are just as good and it's just hard to see that sometimes it's nice to have someone pointed out to you so this is a very honest conversation Karen has since retired and it means that she's able to speak really openly about her experience over or 30 years I think she began teaching in the 80s and retired around I'm going to say around 2012 and she's now studying a master's in theology because she's just always trying to upskill and remain educated and in the know and she's just a fascinating woman big heart has had to survive a myriad of life situations and have the utmost respect for her as a human being, as a mother, grandmother, teacher, I know that you'll love this conversation. But before I hand it over to Karen, I do want to do my little business shout out. And this one is to The Sweet Smash. And if you listen to the episode Inspired and Nervous Pre-Service with Katie, this is her side business. And just a little rundown, she says that she's always enjoyed baking and anything creative. And she used to be obsessed with watching Cake Boss when she was younger and began subjects at school called Vet Bakery in year 10, where she learned to make many different recipes and baking techniques. However, during VCE and uni, she never really had time to do it. And so in isolation, she rediscovered this passion and she's creating smash cakes and cupcakes. And she's incredible. She made one for my son's second birthday. It was a beautiful dinosaur smash cake. And she made all of these really bespoke cupcakes for him based on his interests and colour selections and I'm definitely going to get her to make some for my daughter's fourth birthday that's coming up as well and she hand delivered them because she wanted to make sure that they came on time so I can highly recommend 
She is located in Taylor's Lakes. At the moment, she is specialising in smash cakes and cupcakes, but will be expanding in the future to desserts as well, or other desserts as well. So I'll put her information in the show notes for you. I also forgot to say that Karen wrote a blog for me and read that blog out last Friday. So her blog is called Education Appreciation. Feel free to listen to it on the podcast, go to the blog and read it there. And now here is my conversation with Karen, my very first mentor teacher. Hi, Karen. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'd like to start with you discussing the role that education has played in your life. Oh, gosh. How far back do you want to go? As far as you like, Karen. Um, (laughs) Well, I, I actually came from a family that didn't really prize education. Mm-hmm. I mean, I left in the 60s. So usually you left what is our now year 10 and you would go and do an apprenticeship or you would go sort of to work. So when I did my matriculation, there was only two classes of about 20 students. That's all that would do year 12. Most of them went year five, mm-hmm. which was called the leaving certificate and that's when you school yeah but I always I always loved education I was always reading I was always wanting to learn so even when I left my year 12 I was still doing sort of like little courses I went to TAFE I redid my year 12 at TAFE yep yeah and then then I went on to uni sort of later in life when you say matriculation at year 12 I've heard the word before obviously so what did that look like what was what was it that you did to achieve your matriculation well matriculation you were streamed girls couldn't do maths or science they were uh, I think one girl did did maths the rest of us did the humanities so we would do shorthand typing home economics economics history, those sort of subjects. But for a girl to do year 12 in the maths and sciences was just really not an option. As I said, one girl in my year level did it. And how were you assessed at that time? Oh, exams, three-hour exam at the end of the year. So the whole year assessment was on that three hours. So if you had a headache or you weren't feeling well that day, too bad. That's when you did it. If you were sick, and missed the exam, you failed it. There was no option to resit. Okay. That was it. And what was it like in the classroom back then? Like what kind of ways were teachers engaging or educating? You would come in, open a textbook, read the chapters, do the chapter exercises. Very little class discussion. I do remember my year 12 English teacher, we were doing Sons and Lovers, D.H. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, and a lot of the mothers complained about the book they didn't like their sons reading it it was a little bit risque okay and during the limited discussion we had one of my friends suggested that perhaps you should live together to find out any irritating (laughs) behaviors before you actually got married our teacher burst into tears just said you disgusting girl and we didn't see her for three days she was traumatized so that was it. We She was gone for three days. She just couldn't handle the discussion that we had yeah. about living together. So that was sort of a reflection of the time. Yeah. That was in 1968. Why was that book considered so risque? Um, oh, because it was a relationship between a mother and a son. Oh, okay. Okay, well, that makes more sense. Yeah. Sons and right. mothers. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So it, uh, and it was D.H. Lawrence. Okay. And he was a bit of a... Um, what alternative author okay. shall we say okay. he, he pressed he, pre, he he sort of pressed the line a little okay. bit so yeah and there was a big big outcry that he was even on the curriculum yeah well mm. I'm and then my history no sorry, keep going i was gonna say my history teacher mr mccarthy his name was absolutely adored him he was very small in stature a bit like danny devito yeah. that sort of size yeah. He would come in and we would have a whole blackboard of notes 
Right. So we would come in, take out our books, start writing on the left-hand side of the blackboard. By the time we got to the right-hand side of the blackboard, he had erased what was on the left yeah. side and had started to write notes again. That was basically it. It was all done by memory, yeah. very little discussion. Yeah. But that was the way it was done. Based on that experience, what was it that made you want to become a teacher? Do you know what? I don't think I really know. I can remember going to my father at the start of year 12 and saying to him that I wanted to go to uni and he laughed and said why it would be a waste because women just got married and had children. So I lost focus a little bit. That's why I went back to year 12 and did my my year – sorry, went to TAFE and did year 12 again – but it wasn't the norm for girls to, to go. But uh, there was always that underlining desire. But then I became a teacher through having to provide for Joe. And a girlfriend suggested to me that I go to uni, you know, because my husband died. Mm-hmm. So I sort of went to uni basically to fill in the nights yeah. because Joe was only a baby. So she was in, in bed asleep by seven. And the nights just hung. So I went and did a arts degree from Deakin on which was now online. Back then it was called distant learning and I'd have everything mailed to me. And I think I was in second year doing Australian studies and it came on the news that Australian studies was going to be made compulsory. Yeah, okay. And then I thought, oh, I might as well go teaching. And that was the decision to go teaching because I was doing Australian studies and I thought, well, chances of employment are pretty high. Yeah, okay. And it would also fit in around Joe at school, school holidays and so forth. And so prior to teaching, what roles did you have? I have worked for an accountant. I have worked for an employment agency. I've run my own business. Phil and I, my husband and I both had a toy shop each. So we ran those. And then I became a kept woman. I didn't work at all for quite a few years. Yeah. And that enabled me to go to TAFE and whatever else. So yeah, I've done a variety of things actually. Oh, and I worked for it first when I left school because I had a job in year 11. Mm Mm-hmm. And they said to me, come back year 12. There's something here now, but it'd be better if you came back in year 12. So I went back and that was the other reason why Dad said I couldn't go to uni. I thought, well, I've got a job to go to anyway. Yeah. And I went to a share broker. Okay. So I was in the share broking during that wonderful mining boom with Poseidon and so forth in 1970, 1969, 70. So they were heady days. We You'd always get a yearly bonus and it would be your year's salary. Wow. Would be your bonus. We used to be able to buy on the Melbourne and Sydney Stock Exchange, but you'd be able to sell in Western Australia, which was four hours behind. And I can remember we made $1,300 profit in a day. Now, $1,300 doesn't sound much these days, but when a house only costs $12,000, your $1,300 was a lot of money. When you were at uni, you decided to become a teacher. What were those teaching years like at university and your placements? What was that all like for you? Well, when I was doing my arts degree, I didn't go to uni. It was all done at home. Yep. So I would do that when Joe was at school. But when I was doing my debed, I went in to Monash and I was in a pilot program where you would spend an entire term at school for a placement. Yeah. So you would be able to set the work and you'd carry it all the way through. So you'd be able to go instead of your four, three weeks or four weeks where you sort of really only did a unit, you could do an entire thing. So that was really good. But I was the only humanities. Most of them were science teachers. Okay. And what did you think of that program compared to the norm now, which is, you know, really the maximum you do is five weeks in a school at a time? Oh, the term was wonderful. I actually went to an underprivileged school and it was probably the highlight of my career, that teaching round. Why? It was amazing. The students, when they had a part-time job, it was to put food on the table and they would buy clothes for themselves and their employment had a real meaning. And they would be just like little sponges because they realised that education was their key to get out of that situation. They knew that they had to be educated in order to to get on. That's the majority of them. And they were just brilliant. They were just so engaged. It was just wonderful. And then after that round, I then went to a privileged school and it was really chalk and cheese. I didn't like the privileged school at all. Okay, why? Because they weren't 
they couldn't be bothered. What was the point? Mum and Dad had given them $50 on a Saturday night. We're having a dinner party. Go away. Get lost. The school couldn't have school camps because of the alcohol and drug issues. Right. So they had to stop. But you would look at that school and think, wow, you know, aren't they lucky? Yeah. But the kids in the underprivileged school were much, much better. It was a real eye-opener, actually. What year are we talking that you're on teaching rounds? Oh, golly gosh, about, 80, about 87. Okay. And how long did you teach for before retiring? About 24 years. Okay. And what positions of responsibility did you hold? When Australian Studies came in, I was actually headhunted for the job because the person at Monash who had put the extended teaching round in was actually on the school council. So they put my name forward to become the Australian Studies teacher. Yep. So I went into the school and was working with someone putting the program into place and the last day of the year this particular teacher came up and said I'm leaving here you are here's all your things wow so first year out I'd been teaching for six months so over the Christmas holidays I had to put in place Australian studies as a compulsory subject for all year 11 which meant training uh, I think seven teachers or eight teachers so I became head of Australian Studies in, after six months of teaching. But I basically didn't go for any positions of responsibility because I wanted to stay in the classroom. Yeah. So other than that, I didn't, I didn't sort of hold anything. But you were head of Year 11 English for a while and you did those kinds of things. Oh, yes, I did those. Yes, I did those. I was in charge of Year 10, in charge of Year 11. Yeah, I didn't look at those as positions of responsibility. <laughs> I... Oh, yeah, I was in charge of of those sort of things, yeah. And I think it is a hard one because I feel, I don't know if you, you saw this too, but especially as a new teacher, you feel like you have to prove yourself so much by taking on all of those additional responsibility positions and it takes you away from the classroom and it really does make it much more difficult to become the teacher you want to be, I think, because you're spread so thin. Well, yeah, and you sort of can't really concentrate on what's happening in the classroom, you're quite right because you are sort of, while you're there, you're thinking of all the other stuff that you've got to do. Yeah. But I love being in the classroom, I must admit. But I also had the advantage of being mature age. Yeah. So when I started teaching, the students didn't know that I was a new teacher. They yeah. thought I'd just come in from another school mm. because I was, you know, I was 38 when I started teaching. So, yep. yeah, I hoodwinked them. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then being a parent too, yeah, I was a step ahead of their tricks. Yeah. I think I definitely struggle with that because, I mean, I started it, mm. I just turned 23 and I think I looked all of 23. I mean, I had staff usher me onto a bus on sports days when I was in casual dress because I didn't know the difference between me and the students. So it is challenging, I think, when you're young to create that. Well, it is. And, that's, and you saying that reminded me there was a free dress day at school and there was two females walking in to the music room eating. And I said, excuse me. And they just turned to look at their shoulders, yeah. uh, you know, over their shoulders and kept walking. <laughs> and I went, right. So I went, excuse me, but, yeah. do you, you know, just who do you think you are sort of thing, eating. And they were members of staff. But they were two, you know, young girls. I thought, yeah. and free dress. I just thought they were year 12. So at 22 or yeah. 23, you're not much older. Yeah than the year 12 so no. it would have been difficult mm. it was I think that I made it more difficult than I needed to I think I was very self-conscious about being so young and looking so young and I remember them asking me how old I was and I'd lie and I'd say I was like 42 <laughs> or something like it was <laughs> but I, I think that I worried yeah. about it perhaps more than the yeah. kids did in hindsight well, one of the girls who was actually yeah. in my dip ed year she did very well on her teaching rounds and everything but she didn't go teaching for another two years because she said to me the first day of school when I was packing my school lunch and my pencil case I thought I'm not much older than the students and she couldn't handle it she did go teaching but she didn't go for a couple of years, she waited till she was she looked a bit older because she thought I'm, yeah, I'm okay. only just out of school myself. Yeah, especially when look, I did it this way too. I went through all of my schooling and then went to oh. university to go back into a classroom. Yeah. You know, without any additional really life experience. And I think that yeah, you have to be ready to do. It's a form of institutionalization, actually. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Which, and, 
and then I must admit my my experiences of being in in business and everything did actually help me because I didn't yeah. get involved in the pettiness yeah. of the staff room and sometimes the way the conversation went I used to look at them and think no that wouldn't happen at an industry you know that wouldn't have happened mm-hmm. in a office situation sort of thing and yes. I think no you don't have you just have a different set of life skills, I think. Yeah, I think so too. For me, you were one of my mentor teachers as a student uh-huh. teacher and my other mentor teacher was a scientist actually and worked in yeah. a lab for many years really successfully before moving into yeah. teaching. So both of you as my first mentor teachers in my first set of rounds were quite well-versed, I suppose, in the world outside of yeah. teaching, which was really beneficial. Yeah. yeah, it would be actually because you're bringing in another – To work at in in the actual workforce, you have to learn to work with personalities from different fields. Like when you're in the staff room, you're dealing with people who are always in the same situation. Whereas when you're in an office, you've got people who've worked in another different type of office. It's just a different atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it just gives you another perspective, I suppose, on things. How did you feel that your teaching evolved through the years in the classroom? Well, I got a lot more confident. Yeah. Before I got headhunted, I was fresh out. I used to cry every morning. I didn't want to go into work. Really? Yeah, it was a very rough school. We had a lot of racial problems. We had Ukrainian and uh, what was the other? I can't remember the other nationality, but there was a lot of racial problems. But I came in fifth week in a first term and I was the kids I was given a year 12 class and I was their sixth teacher in five weeks so the day I told them I was leaving there was an almost a riot because I was there for the rest of the term I left at Easter and I started at the other school second term but the kids were just devastated I was really upset actually because again they were nice kids but just no one stayed. And I heard along the grapevine that the person who replaced me had a nervous breakdown. Why was everyone leaving after a week? Because it wasn't a very good school. It, it had a lot of problems. Administration was fairly weak Yeah, in inverted commas. And, uh, yeah, they just didn't stay. And so why were you able to put up with it, I say that in inverted commas too, longer than the rest? Well, as I said, I cried just about every morning, but I just felt a responsibility to the to the year 12s. Yeah. When they settled down, they were really nice kids. And I just felt, I suppose in a way, yeah. I felt sorry for them. And I said to the, the staff room, I said, look, yeah. I've got this opportunity. I've been headhunted and all the staff just said, go, run basically the school right. no longer exists it's well, been absorbed into a sort of a college so okay my belief is that it's very difficult to not find at least one redeeming oh, feature in a child yeah do you there feel there was that? always something even if it was just yeah. a nice smile there was always i loved the kids i yeah. really did sometimes they drove you insane but you're right there was always something nice yeah. about them and then when you when you looked at the yeah. students that were perhaps a little bit difficult, once you looked into their background, you could understand why they were yep. difficult. So yep. having a having access yep. to their background is a real help when you're teaching. Absolutely. Well, because I think we're all products of our environment at oh, the end of the God. day and we don't know where everybody's come from. And I think I've had this conversation a little bit with primary teachers too, that's what's lacking a bit at secondary. It's so disjointed because you have one subject, you see them for 45 yeah. minutes, the ability to really see them develop throughout the day and what shifts throughout the day. You don't get that opportunity. No, and it depends on when you have them. If you have them in the morning, yeah. they're completely different as to how they are yeah. at the last lesson of the day. If you have them in yeah. early in the week, they're completely different as at the end of the week, especially if you had them sixth yep. period on a Friday. If it's raining or it's yes. windy or it's boiling hot, they're completely different. Yeah. So having that background knowledge I think is really, really important. Yeah. Because you're right. I still think we can work more on that. Oh, definitely. A lot of work needs to be done. I can remember also I had a um, remedial reading class and I had a particular yeah. – which is year seven – and I can remember going yeah. to the principal and asking for their NAPLAND results 
And I was told yeah. that they wouldn't be available till next year. And I said, but I need them now. What point is it? And they just said, sorry, yeah. the results aren't put out. I, we can't access them. And I'm thinking, well, what, what's the point of the NAPLAN if you can't utilise them that year? But you yeah. don't even get them a week later. So what's the point? I think that's the thing with those standardised tests. Are they a marketing tool or are they a teaching tool? Oh, I think they're a marketing tool, definitely. Because you, yeah. if you don't get the results of the test, what point are they? I mean, yeah. you need them virtually within the month. Yeah. So if we're going to all this effort of doing these standardised tests and getting the information and the data, it needs to go to the people mm. that can use it. Mm. Yeah. And you know what? I've actually never even thought to ask for that data before. Oh, no, I asked. Because I just yeah. I haven't assumed it was part of my teaching, you know, repertoire, I suppose. But it's such, it, of course, why shouldn't I yeah. have asked for it? No, well, it's not. Well, you didn't have to ask because it's not available. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh yeah I, I was stunned I was absolutely stunned to be honest yeah yeah that's just speaking to my indoctrination perhaps <laughs> I'm just being a a player in the classroom not even thinking outside the box as to what data could be used for outside of its basic use I got very cynical towards the end with we would have professional development days and yeah. I can remember one in particular, we had to look at the difference between boy, boys' education and, and girls' education. And I was yeah. so excited. I really, I was really pumped to be able to yeah. do this. But my group, while well, I was English, there was myself and another English teacher. The rest of them taught languages. So there was okay. the French and the Japanese. But I wasn't allowed to look at boys doing English. I had to oh. fall into line, if you like, with yeah. what they were teaching in French and Japanese. And it was a waste. I, I just sat back in the end. I thought, well, if I can't do what I was wanting to do, yeah. to me, the whole professional development was irrelevant. And I was really deflated. It was like someone had pricked my balloon. I said that to the administration, but it was just fobbed off. Well, that's what we're doing. That's it. And I said, well, there's a real need to look at the different ways of teaching boys and girl, they are different. Every yeah. year I would say, I'm going to learn the girls' names first. Never did. In the entire 24 years, 24 plus, I never oh, did. really? I always Why? knew the boys first because they were more demanding. Yeah, They okay. just got your attention more than the girls did. The girls sat there very quiet. It was the boys who were more vocal, who you had to pull into line a little bit or, you know, make them focus on their work a little bit more. Even the activities, you sort of had to keep the boys in mind when you were asking them to do something because you think, well, you know, the boys aren't going to like that. Yeah. So it was almost like you had to cut that middle ground yeah. for what you're going to get them to do particularly middle school yeah, oh yeah definitely yeah. middle school yeah. that's a challenging time middle school oh yes yeah but I love middle school you could year 10 what you got at the end of the year was completely different to what you got at the start of the year you could really see that maturity which you didn't see any yeah. other year level this is really interesting to me because I pretty much taught sevens eights elevens and twelves and oh. I just skipped middle school I had a dance elective for a little while but I got a very very niche group of kids that wanted to dance yeah. and I'm not sure that, that was a true reflection of middle school so tell me about your time in middle school and the fact that you loved being in there and why you loved being in there I taught middle school for the majority of my 24 years yeah I think I had a middle school no do you know what I think I would have had a middle school every year and I can remember being a parent teacher interviews at the start of the year you know that mid sort of yes. end of first term one and I'd have mothers literally crying. I don't know what yeah. to do with my son. He's, you know, he's rude. He's, he grunts and whatever else. I used to just say <laughs> to them, hang in there. You'll get yeah. a different boy at the end of the year. And then we had the final parent-teacher interviews. I got the same parents saying you were right. There's just yeah. a real maturity. I think it's knowing that they're going into VCE that perhaps that second term, they sort of, or second semester, they start getting their act together. But there is a real growth. It, yeah. It's just lovely to say, not so noticeable with the girls, but with the okay. boys, it was a, instead of a grant at the end of the year, you would actually get a conversation with them. Yeah, uh, They would start doing their homework. They would start engaging in classroom activities. And it was just, it was like watching a flower open, if I can be 
be sort of sucked <laughs> into that. Be a real um, English teacher. Give me the give me the imagery. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was just beautiful to watch. And then yeah. in year eleven, they got a little bit because sometimes you would have them. You know, the students you had in year ten, you'd get in in year yeah. eleven, and they became a little bit cheeky in year eleven. Yes. But then if you got them in year twelve, I mean, they were young adults. Year twelve, they're yeah. young adults. So you That's could right. you had more of a rather than a teacher-student relationship, you had more of an adult-adult relationship. There was still that line yeah. you couldn't cross, yeah, but you could treat them a little bit differently. I think, it, yeah, I wouldn't use the word respect because you always have that respect, but you could sort of just step that little bit closer to them. And in fact, I used to think I knew probably yeah. more about some of my Year 12 students than their parents did. And sometimes I'd be I think yeah. that's They'd be saying things to him and I'd say, yeah. no, I don't think I want to know that. Uh, don't tell me yeah. I want to know that. You know? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, the year 12s, it, it was just lovely to watch, particularly if you had year 10 and then you had them again in year 11 and then you saw them again in year 12. It was just yeah. lovely to see that maturity happening. Yeah. Yeah. Joan, I remember a student you had, I'm going to call him Mark as his alias, who you had in year 11 and 12, and he was known for being a very challenging child or student, I should say, and you had this really, I feel, important moment or you talked to me about this moment in year 12 that you had with him that has always stuck with me. I'd really love you to sort of take me through the journey of your time with Yeah, no, Mark. I had Mark in year 11, and he, you were right, he was very challenging. He would come in late. He would be very disruptive. If I asked him to go on task or something like that, he would back chat. He really was difficult. And he was known throughout the school for oh, being yes, difficult. It wasn't, it wasn't just, just me. That was, that was the one reason yeah. I, I sort of coped, I suppose, is I realised it wasn't me. Yeah. It wasn't anything <laughs> with my teaching where I was failing it was, was yeah. the student. He was like it with everybody. And when we went into early commencement for year 12, he was in my class again. So I can remember going to the coordinator and saying, look, I have Mark. It may be better that he's with another teacher. If you can get him out of my class, that'd be lovely. And then I went back to my desk and I thought, do you know what? Someone's got to have him. Yeah. So that was a bit of an unfair request. So I immediately okay. went back in and said, forget about it. I'll just have Mark in my class. We'll, yeah. uh, you know, we'll be fine. I'll do the best I can. So I can remember going to the class and I'm unlocking the door and Mark was standing there and I said to him, I'm sorry, Mark, but you've got me again this year. I did try to get you out of my class, but I figured <laughs> someone had to have you, so it might as well have been me. And yeah. he looked at me and he said, you know what, miss, we'll be all right. Yeah. And we sort of were. But then we yeah. were doing, I'm trying to think of the, the novel, it was the name of the reality. novel. Yeah, it was Whose Reality? It was Whose Reality? Um, what was it? Spy? Was it Spies we were doing? Yes, it was with the pivot yeah. tree <laughs> or pivot yes. um, benches. Yeah. And we had to put up uh, Whose Reality? And I put up, they had to say some things, but then I put up some personal details on the board for myself and I put up that I was a widow along with and I had a daughter and blah blah well they knew I had a daughter so that was real so just to give some context maybe to the task so whose reality was about the way you perceive yeah, yeah. the way you perceive reality and the fact that your truth is literally a perception yeah. um it's not a fact and we were exploring texts that looked at the way we sort of misinterpret things and we perceive things mm. in different ways mm. and so one of the activities that we did is that we put up what five truths five and truths. a lie yeah. based on what the kids thought about us as teachers and yeah. then they had to choose the lie. So, yeah, that's yes. the task. And he chose the lie as that I was a widow and I said, no, actually, that's a truth. And he was devastated. And he, he picked that because he didn't want it to be true for you. He got quite tearful yeah. on that. Absolutely. He was really quite yeah. upset which was quite yeah. endearing. I've often wondered actually how he's gone in life. We ended up really yeah. quite okay. He was right when he said yeah. we'll be okay, miss. Yeah. And we were. It's amazing that, and again, I suppose yeah. it's the growth that happens between 11 and 12. But also I think 
I keep hearing in every conversation that I do that the relationship is just so important. If you can create that relationship, and again, the boundaries obviously have to be there, but if you can encourage kids to connect with you in a way that they feel as though they're safe, they're comfortable, and that you care, then the learning can happen, I think. Yeah, and and that's why I sort of liked you 12 because you did have that relationship, but you have to be very careful of that line. Now, I didn't have a problem with the line because, as I said, I was mature age. But when you've got, say, someone in their mid-20s teaching a year 12, there's not really that, what's the word I'm looking for, that I suppose I came over more as a grandmother, yeah, a okay. mother or a grandmother, because actually my year twelve students, because I used to wear white linen, and one of I went past one of my year twelve girls, and she said, "Oh, you smell just like my nan. She wears the same." <laughs> and I sort of laughed. I said, "Well, I'll take that as a compliment." <laughs> but yeah, so I I never had that problem, but I do know some of the other younger teachers did have that problem of yeah. that line. You know, you couldn't become yeah. too friendly with them. Yeah, you had to maintain that yeah. that division because once you cross that line, you're in a lot of trouble. And I saw a lot of teachers get into trouble. Okay. As an English teacher and primarily teaching English for so many years, what were some of your favourite texts to teach? Oh, gosh. I can remember one year I was teaching Letters from the Inside by Marsden and it was brilliant. I had an exceptional class, but we spent an entire double period just debating the definition of evil. It was just brilliant. And then their text alongside that was 1984. That was another text we did that year. And again, the class just, as I said, it was a class in a lifetime, you know, where you just get there's five or six students in it. One ended up being a doctor. I had a physiotherapist, marine biologist, and a chemist. Yeah. We're just four of the students. That So that was the calibre of them. And they were just brilliant to teach. It was just a delight to walk in the room. Yeah. I enjoyed Oedipus Rex. Okay. I think that brought up a lot of issues for the students. And that was just year 12. I thoroughly enjoyed Romeo and Juliet. I think I taught that for many years. I was devastated when they took that off the curriculum. Why did you love it so much? Because I, I think everyone needs to learn Shakespeare. Why? And they were taking Shakespeare off. Oh, his language. <laughs> and his and the issues that were, were raised, so relevant to today. I mean, you look at, you know, yeah. greed, lust, love, power. I mean, it's all just there. It's such a shame yeah. that Shakespeare isn't valued anymore. He's seen as old hat. Yeah. Well, I think he is too. To a lot of people seen as old hat. Yeah. I can remember one year, the year 12s, we were doing um, Henry Lawson's short stories and it was a yep. dud. It, it completely bombed. <laughs> 12, the kids did not engage in it, but I loved Henry Lawson. Yeah. I actually did a, a whole unit of Henry Lawson when I was doing my arts degree because I double majored in one of the Australian studies, but my other major was literature. And Henry Lawson yeah. and Banjo Patterson featured very much into that. And I also picked it up in Australian studies as well because of the culture. And I can remember I was reading them the short story of Bill the Rooster and the imagery is just brilliant. Anyway, I'm reading it out loud to the kids, getting absolutely no reaction. And I'm killing myself laughing. At the end of the story, I just said, but don't you get it? And I said, no, we just like watching you read it. (laughs) 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 Enjoy it. But they just didn't get it. They... Were nodded yeah. and didn't matter what the story was. Uh, drove his wife, yeah. couldn't have cared less about her. They just, yeah, it only lasted a year. They took it off after that. I do think, though, there is a challenge between the love of literature and the history of literature and finding relevant mm. texts that kids yeah. really, really engage with. And it is a challenge. I mean, I used to find every year you'd look over the book list and you'd be like, oh, yeah trying to engage with some of the text, not because I didn't love it or that I didn't see the relevance of it, but because I could see that it would be so challenging to get the kids to invest in it. And I do find that to be really a problem when those texts are Mm. chosen way outside of often being in a classroom. Well, a lot of the 
people on that select committee haven't been in a classroom for many years. They're sort of gone into administration. So I don't think they're particularly in tune. But what are the kids engaged in today? I mean, everything is just, you know, the first question is, is there a movie to this? You know, they're so used to the the visual and the easy access rather than sitting down and and reading a book. I mean, I love the feel of the pages. I mean, even to me, to read an electronic book is difficult for me because I love the the smell of the paper and the feel of the paper. So when I'm reading, I like that rather than an e-book or, or watching the movie. But I guess the question is, is it wrong? Is it wrong to be more engaged by the visual? Is it wrong to be more interested in short, quick things rather than investing in something that takes a long time to get to the end? I don't know. No, I don't don't know that either. I just feel it a bit sad, though, that to me they're, they're missing out on a lot. It's not just a matter of reading a book. Within reading the book, you get the idea of sentence structures. You get the imagination. You get the language, the descriptive language. So it's not just a matter of reading a book per se. It's that journey of what the book can offer you. And as I said, yeah. it's, it's something tangible. You can you can actually see how a paragraph's formed. You can yeah. see the language that's being used and how that language is stimulating your imagination. I mean, when I read yeah. Pride and Prejudice, my Mr Darcy has never been emulated in any of the, um, you know, Colin Firth and all this sort of thing. He still hasn't got, not even, not even close to my image of what Mr. Darcy looks like. Right. So I think you're missing out on that when you, when you don't read the book. I mean, how many times though, do you read the book and see the movie and you go, oh, it wasn't as good as the book? I mean, I think most people find that because the descriptions and the way that you've Mm. seen it, felt it, embodied the text is completely different to somebody else's interpretation. And that's the whole point. It's an interpretation of the film. But I do think society has changed so much that people aren't as quick with their imagination as they once were. They aren't as willing to be whisked away into something they can see for themselves when they have the option of someone showing them. And I think that that's potentially mm. a societal yeah, shift. Yeah, to me it's quite sad. I don't I don't think I can mm. ever remember seeing a film that equaled the book. No. In fact, I went and saw uh, Little Women last year when we could all go to the cinema and I was really yeah. quite angry, I suppose. Okay, why? The film completely changed. It wasn't called Little Women. It was called Beth's Story for a start. So when, when the book was published, it came out as Beth's Story, not Little oh. Women. But it just didn't capture what was in the book, the whole personalities of of Joe, yeah. the personalities of Beth. No, it was just just wrong. <laughs> it was, yeah, I was really quite upset about okay. it. Have you seen the other two interpretations? Were they no. any better? I've seen with I mean, Pride and Prejudice would have to be my most favourite. I've got every copy, so I've got the BBC yep. series, I've got the film, and yep. I've got the film with um, Kira Knightley, but I've also got the 1948 film with David Niven and uh, yep. Olivia de Havilland, and which is hysterical. Yeah. It's it's laughable that 1948 one, but none of them have come up to right. my expectation as to what the characters were. I don't think it's they've really captured what Jane Austen wanted them to capture or my, my perception of what Jane Austen yeah. wanted them to capture. Sorry, I missed that. Oh. Could you say... Sorry, Why do you love it so much? Please apologise. <laughs> You'll be editing that bit out. What is it about the story? I just... I think I love the character of Elizabeth. I think she's just such a gutsy person. She's just out there. She's, do you know what? I don't think I can even verbalise why I just, I, it is my most favourite. I have read it and read it. In fact, if ever I go to hospital, I've actually got an abridged book that I always take. The pages are all brown. Yeah. I've had it since I was a child okay. and I just love it. It's a book I take yeah. if I have to go anywhere. I take my pride and prejudice. How would you describe Mm. yourself as a teacher? I would like to think that I was caring, that I had the students' welfare at heart. I'd like to think that I was a fair teacher. And you know what? That's a rather hard question. Or maybe is it better to ask you what your values were as a teacher? Is that easier? My values as a teacher would be to, well, always put the students first, definitely. Try and stimulate their 
inquisitiveness. Yeah. <laughs> if that's a word. Yeah. Sort of try and challenge them to start thinking of things perhaps in a different way. I'd like to think that I'd instill some values in them. I like mm. to think, you know, I must admit sometimes I thought I was on my soapbox a little bit and, <laughs> and sometimes I had to think, hang on a minute, I'm not their parent. Yeah. This this is a lesson that a parent should be telling them, not me. Yeah. Particularly the year nine girls, year ten girls. They were finding their way. Yeah. A lot of them had problems socially. Okay. A lot of them were taken advantage of yeah. socially. Socioeconomic group that I was teaching in that area parents worked both parents worked Um, I can remember asking a year 12 class who had dinner as a family unit with everyone sitting around the table one person put up their hand right she was the only one in the class who had dinner as a family unit but then when we broke it up it was because dad worked in the city so he didn't leave the city till say six which got him home at at seven seven thirty depending on the traffic they might have worked shift work the students worked or they had activities like football basketball and yeah the opportunities to sit around the table as a family unit just didn't happen so I was trying to instill I suppose a conversation that you would normally have as a family over the kitchen table I was trying to sort of copy that within the classroom which wasn't always easy yeah Hmm. and that thing there are assumptions made that probably shouldn't be made as teachers because you just don't really know what's going on at home often. No, definitely not. I know one particular boy in year 12, he wasn't. He and his sister weren't allowed to eat until his, fa- his parents had finished eating. So he and his sister could eat what was left over from what the parents didn't eat. Wow. Yeah. I can remember a little year seven boy, I said to him, are you okay? And he said, I haven't eaten since lunchtime yesterday. There was just no food. So he was sent down yeah. to get something from the school nurse. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot of untold stories, actually. I had another year yeah. 12 girl who was living with her father. He died. He'd passed away. She went home to mum, who had her boyfriend living there. She had to put a chair under the door handle to be safe. In the end, she moved out and lived in a caravan. And I found this all out when we were getting ready for exams. And I just said to her, why didn't you let me know? Wow. I said, you could have come and lived with me. I said, we... And we have places. I mean, the school had sort of like a refuge place for students. And she just looked at me and said, oh, there's a lot worse off than me. You know, so, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of stories that – and that's why I get very cross when people go off about teenagers, you know, because I think I hate the pressures. When I was at school, unemployment was probably 0.3. We all had jobs. In fact, yep. if you went for interviews, you got all the interviews. So you would have to figure out which job you actually wanted. As I said before, I had a job in year yep. 11. I just decided the yep. job was waiting for me at the end of year 12. We didn't have the pressures that the kids have. I mean, they're, they're working, they yep. play sport. When I was a teenager, if you worked, it meant that your family was in poverty. Your parents just gave yeah. you money. And the thing is, you can't put an old head on young shoulders either. What they're going through is real for them. Uh-huh. It is all-consuming. And I think dismissing some of the big feelings, the social dramas, the pressures that they put on themselves or are put on them uh-huh. is doing them a disservice. You kind of have to just validate it all and give them support and opportunity and a path to navigate yeah. their way out I of mean, it. I mean, you know, this... The score at the end of year 12, you know, if they don't get in the 90s, they're failed. I can remember I had a boy in year 12 who just said to me, we were doing an outcome, and he just said to me, I can't do this. And he was beside himself. So I just said, you're doing a TAFE course, aren't you? You know, where you had that VCAL as well, so they could do. And he said, yeah, no, I'm I'm building. I said, yeah, Yeah. how are you going there? And he said, oh, I'm fine. I said, so you want to be a builder at the end of thing? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, who cares? Who cares what you get? You're going on to uni because this is what these are all about. All you have to do is pass. Yeah. But I said, you don't have to get an A plus. As long yeah. as you pass, you're okay because you're going to be a builder. Yeah. And I said, and I'll tell you what, when you've been a builder, can you come pass in your powder blue Mercedes and 
let me know because all the ones who have gone to uni <laughs> will be asking, do you want chips with that? Because I said they will have to go on and do something else. You know, there's no guaranteed employment yeah. at the end. He ended up getting a B because all the pressure was taken off yeah. him. He just wrote and he did so well. Yep. And I think yep. I was with you one day, one of your students came in and he failed because he only got 93 and his friends all got 96 or 97. And, you know, mm. you just sort of, and yeah. I think I got cross and I said, go and say that to someone who only got 62. Yeah, so really all yes. that pressure's put on them for their yeah. ATAR score and it's only relevant if you're going to go on and do something with it. And also it's only relevant for a short time exactly. too because then you can get in as a mature age or yeah. you can move from a different course yeah. and, and it is not an intelligence test. It is not a score to measure your intelligence in any way, shape or form. It is giving the universities game. an easy way to work out who gets into their course. And that number, it just changed every year. I mean, one year you might have only 53. It was a popular course. So the following year it goes yeah. up to 65. I can remember when I started teaching, it was anorexia and bulimia were the oh. problems. We had a lot of issues, not just with the girls either, it was with the boys as well. And when I left, it was anxiety and depression. As somebody who went through school in the 90s, I reflect on the role models that we had in the 90s and our waists were expected to be thinner than our eyebrows. Mm. You know, you got your Kate Moss. That was what we were trying to emulate at that time. And it's so interesting to me that those are the pressures that you saw come into your classroom based on what society valued at that time. Yeah. Then it became more about the scoring. And then the social media part comes in and then that wreaks havoc too. It's just crazy. Yeah, the bullying that went on yeah. with social media was unbelievable, which was part of the, the anxiety bit. I can remember one girl, I was going to class, I don't know if she was year 11 or year 12, she wasn't one of my students, but she was sitting there crying. And I said to her, you know, are you okay? And she said, no, my boyfriend's just dumped me. And I just looked at her and said, and you're crying? And she goes, well, yeah. And I said, look, go and have a look in the mirror. She was stunning. And I just went, go and have a look in the mirror and then just say to your reflection, well, isn't he silly? He's lost. She goes, oh, yeah, so it is. <laughs> and because the school in yeah. is to where it was, they knew schools from the surrounding areas and quite yeah. my final year, but towards the end we had a year where there was quite a few suicides, which was devastating because although there were no one from our mm. school, they were kids that our pupils yeah. knew. You know, they either played football with them or they sort of socialised yeah. with them or they worked with them. And that was pretty horrible as well. Yeah. In fact, one of my year trials, we were having a um, an yeah. outcome and he was one of the footballers. He was quite a solid, tall guy and he was crying. He said, I can't do my outcome this afternoon. Yeah. He was on the phone till three o'clock in the morning trying to stop a mate from suiciding because another mate had suicided about mm. a month beforehand. So, you know, that's an untold pressure oh to put gosh. on an 18-year-old. And I actually said yeah. to him, that's an awfully unfair position. Of course, you don't have to sit your outcome. <laughs> that was awful. Yeah. I think there was about yeah. four, four suicides that year, which came into the, you know, depression and anxiety. Yeah. yeah. It's all very real, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. You know, all of these things are real. It's not just a passing phase. Sometimes no. the phases don't pass or the get over it mentality is not enough. Oh. They really do need the support of yeah. professional help and guidance. And I think teachers need more help too, to know what to do and where to go and where to guide them. Well, yeah, it's a difficult one because, you know, as I said to this particular student, I said, this is out of my expertise. I said, I can't, I don't yeah. know what to say to you because I'm not trained. But I said, I know, yes. you know, I said, who do you want to talk to, A or B, who was able to deal with the situation because they knew what they were doing. I was completely out of my depth in that because we're not trained for it. You're quite right. Yeah. Yeah. And even when you're doing your deep ed and you're teaching rounds, it's almost like a, a false sense of security because until you get your own class and, in, and you're actually in front of your students, you don't know anything. It really is a job no. you learn as you go. Yes. Yeah, and a few student teachers that I had, I actually suggested that they look elsewhere. They weren't teachers. A, they didn't like kids. B, they didn't like mm. being in, the, in that situation. They were very disorganised. And I just said to them, look, 
perhaps you should look at a different career because a lot of teachers become teachers because they don't know what else to do. Yeah, we need to disrupt that narrative. You're yeah. doing so many people a disservice if you do that because oh. you are really influential as a teacher, whether you want to be yeah. or not. Well, the first thing I think if you're going to be a teacher is that you have to like kids. If you don't like teenagers. <laughs> Or yeah. young children. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to my granddaughter's teacher. She's grade three. And I'm thinking, there's no way I could do this. I couldn't yeah. teach primary. Mm. I struggled in some ways, even teaching year sevens, because they were very demanding. Concentration span of about 10 minutes. To keep them on task yeah. was, you know, you had to sort of have a whole lot of little activities for them, which did my head because yeah, I'd go yeah. from a year seven class to a year 12 class and while I was in transit I'd have to get the mind moving and if I was coming from a year 12 yeah, into a year seven my year sevens used to say but we can't understand what you're saying you're using big words so the expectations I'd have for a year yeah. 12 I couldn't have that expectation on a year seven but I had five minutes to change my mindset that's obviously how we met is you were my mentor teacher, my, my very first mentor teacher, my very first day of teaching rounds. Would you like to give me your impression of that time, Karen? Oh, as soon as you walked in, as soon as you walked in the door, I knew you had it. It was, yeah, there was just something about you that you just had it. The kids loved you from the moment you walked in the door. They loved your shoes. <laughs> you just had that air about you. There was probably you and two other student teachers that I had in those 20-odd years that I could say mm. that happened. And, in fact, after a week I actually went to administration and said, you've got to sign her up. Did you? Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. But then I had some who would, as I said before, I would have to say, look, I'm sorry, but maybe a career change is better for you or do something and then come back to teaching, Yeah, you know, go out and work for a couple of years and then come back to it. How was that received? Oh, pretty well, actually, on the whole, because I think they realised that they were really struggling. They were in tears. I had one male teacher who ended every day in tears. Mm. Yeah, as you say, it's that institutionalisation in a way is that, well, I know this. It's comfortable. I've been in a classroom. I know the environment. So why not? Well, it's hard work. Yeah. I think people think, oh, I'll only work from nine till three. Then I have a lunch break and then I've got, you know, recess. So it's going to be a pretty cushy job. But it's not. It really is a hard job. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. You're a teacher. You're a mentor. You're a role model. In some cases, you're almost a parent. And, yeah, you wear a lot of hats, yeah. actually. Yeah. And as you know, there's a lot of work with marking and prep. Yeah. School holidays are virtually non-existent because over that time you're preparing for the next term. End of year holidays, you might get a couple of weeks, but then you'll once you hit January, well, you're getting ready for February. Yes. So it's not an easy job, but it's a very rewarding one. Yeah. Very rewarding. That's why I would say like it never stops because you want to always make it better. Mm. You know, like if you go to a shop and you see an activity that you think, oh, the kids would love that, you'll buy it. Or you see yeah. a film on the weekends yeah. and you think, oh, I'm teaching something like that. I'm just going to watch that because that will give me more information about that course. It's always oh. you're constantly and it's all mm. because you want to make it better exactly. for the kids in your room and your kids are different every yeah. year if not every semester. And so you have to do that work again and again and again to make sure that what you're teaching, even if it's the same text, mm. that it's exciting to these new kids. Yeah. Did you have any negative experiences with a pre-service teacher? Oh, gosh, yes. Would you like to give me some insight into that? I had one who took an instant dislike and very lazy and just didn't do any prep. He ended up being asked to leave the school. The principal actually went up and said, you can go because he verbally attacked me in the staff room. So other staff members mm. intervened and he and another student teacher were told to leave because they just sat in the staff room and uh, negative comments and really was just in a very loud voice saying how bad everything was in the school. So they were asked to leave. Wow. But then it turned out that when he went to another school, he was actually a, a student teacher to one of my ex-colleagues. Right. So he was then starting to go off about how bad I was and, and my ex-colleague had to say, look, I'll pull you up there because um, this person is actually a personal friend of mine yeah. but it turned out that the student teacher was an alcoholic right so he said it was a wake-up call so he got his act okay. together so but he was bad he really was bad yeah 
I remember having a student teacher who I had a similar, not quite the direct conversation with, but I had to ask her why she was doing the course and she couldn't answer. She didn't know why she was doing it. Mm. A particular day, she'd followed me around all day, given me notes, which was, you know, so kind of her on my teaching. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was doing production at the time. So I must have had a five or six on day, which is with six periods in a day, it's a pretty full day. And I had production at the end of the day. So I was then going to the hall from 3.30 to 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night. And she came with me and sat there for about five minutes and we were sort of doing roll call and getting all the kids in. And she just came up to me and said, I'm just so tired. I just don't think I can do this. I need to go home and have a sleep. And she left. (laughs) And it was just so shocking because she just followed me around for the day. That was my day every day and she was just sitting That's in a That's what corner. I was saying. Not everyone's cut out to be a teacher. They don't They don't realise the work involved. No, and I don't mean to laugh, but it was so – I couldn't – she walked out and my colleagues were saying, where's she gone? I said, I think she's gone for a nap. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'll take you for another two hours and finish this choreography. I know. They're big dads because I did the dead balls too. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, that's so much work, the dead balls. But it was lovely because uh, you'd see all the kids in their beautiful outfits and they did look gorgeous. And that's what it's all for, really. So you are now back studying. What are you studying? Theology. So Why? Well, I actually was doing a whole lot of little courses. I got onto a website called Future Learn fantastic stuff. I did military ethics from the University of Canberra. I've done anti-Semitism from a university in America. I've done the Holocaust from the University of Tel Aviv. I've done Richard III from University of Birmingham. It was all around the world, all unis all around the world. I've done Jane Austen, um, Hans Christian Andersen, numerous, numerous ones. But they're only little courses that went for about six or eight weeks and then I just thought no I want something a little bit more substantial so I rang my uni at, yeah. at Deakin where I did Australian studies to see if I could do my master's in Australian studies but I didn't get enough points to do it and okay. I hung up the phone turned around and thought oh I'm going to do theology and that was it why theology absolutely no idea it was just, I've always <laughs> been interested because I, I also joined the University of the Third Age and one of the subjects there was religions of the world. Yeah. So I had a little bit of a taste of yeah. oh, Seven-day Adventist, Catholic, Islam, Judaism, Scientology. And I've, I've sort of always been interested, always had an interest in religion. Yeah. I enrolled then and there. And so what are you learning? Well, I often giggle because I can always remember my year 12 saying, but miss, I haven't read the book and I haven't read the book. I I have not read the Bible, but I'm slowly learning it, except some of my fellow students. I've been in with a nun. I've been in with a priest. Most of them have a Catholic background, which I don't. I've learnt about Jesus as in the historical figure. I've learned the history yep. of Christianity. At the moment, I'm doing philosophy. So I'm doing the problem of evil, which is yep. a real problem. Because <laughs> I really, okay. it is really challenging. Okay. I've done um, pra- or Catholic practice. So looking at goodwill, I studied St. Vincent de Paul. I did that as a major research. So yeah, I've learned a, a lot, actually. It's quite, f- when you start sort of delving into Christianity, it is very interesting, very patriarchal, very much so. Yeah. But yeah, it is. It's quite fascinating, actually. Has it shifted your perspective about anything? Has it really challenged you and your way of thinking in any way? I'm thinking, I think I'm looking at the morality of the world a little bit differently. How so? I think we need to work on it. I don't think there is much morality anymore because when I was growing up, our social activities actually went around the church, go to church on a Sunday. You had a quiet day. We would go visiting. There was no games, no loud games. Conversation was sort of on a quieter level. I don't think we have that foundation anymore. The young kids now have better things to do. Do you think that it has to come with a religious background in order to gain that kind of moral compass again. No, I don't think you have to be religious, but I think you just have to have that that awareness of the morality. I think at the moment 
society is very much a me society. What is it in it for me? What can I get out of that? Yeah. Rather than yeah. what can we get out of that? Or which way are we going? I think we're very self-centred at the moment. Yeah. I think that the importance of relationships has become very mm. clear. Good relationships, authentic relationships, and ones based out of a genuine care for someone and kindness rather than what you can get yeah. from someone. I think that that's become very obvious to a lot of people. Yeah, well, people are getting to know their neighbours. They're now sort of saying, well, are you okay? They're sort of aware of, of who their neighbours are, whereas before they yeah. wouldn't have a clue who was living next door to them. Yeah. Or too busy. Exactly right. And I think people now have realised what is actually important. What are some of the greatest lessons you have ever learnt? I learnt very quickly after my husband died to not rely on anybody else other than yourself. Ultimately, that you are responsible for, for yourself. You are also responsible for your community, yeah. but that extends from the responsibility of from you. You have to yeah. be aware of influences, outside influences. You have to have contact with people who have your best interests at heart, um, who genuinely care for you. You find out very quickly who your friends are in times of adversity. Yeah. yeah, that's about that would be my biggest actually. Yeah. Did you find that the people that in terms of being genuine friends, were they surprising in some of those difficult times or were they the people you expected? They were the people I expected. There was a few people okay. I expected that didn't Okay. That, that was a bit of a shock. But basically the people who stuck by me, I knew they would stick by me. And we're still yeah. we're still quite close. My very best friend, I've, I've, I met her when I was 18. We've never had a yeah. crossword. So, yeah, she's been by my side through thick and thin. Yeah. Yeah. So, But we all have a friend like that, I think. There's always yeah. yeah. They don't always come at 18, though. I think you're lucky that you got one at 18. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one at 18 and one at 19. So they've been... Mm, yeah. Thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate you giving me so much to think about and I love the way that you're able to show us the journey of education from... I don't know about that. <laughs> from the way you saw it. You saw it at least. Two hours. It'll be very much edited down. <laughs> <laughs>